0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: I'm in a fancy garden, hemmed in by towering green hedges and fringed with stunning flower beds and tinkling water features. It's the wedding of Sophia and her very soon-to-be husband. He has politely asked us not to mention his name in this episode.
2: And welcome, everyone, on this most beautiful day.
1: The day should be perfect. It is perfect, except for one thing. Sophia's parents have refused to attend. Sophia was born in Australia and comes from an Indian Muslim family. Her fiancé was also born in Australia, but is a white guy from a Christian background. He's not what Sophia's parents had imagined for their daughter. Sophia's biggest hope for her wedding day isn't grand gestures and milestone speeches. She simply hopes that her parents will show up. I'm Yumi Steins. Ladies, we need to talk about what happens when you fall in love with someone from a different culture. Getting to this day, the wedding day, is a huge challenge for any couple. You have to cross so many thresholds, like the first time you say I love you, the first time you meet each other's parents, the first time you smell each other's farts. But for lovers from completely different cultural and ethnic backgrounds, race, religion and tradition can add multiple layers of complication. The University of Melbourne did a survey in 2017 that showed one in four Australian couples are inter-ethnic. And the stats hold up for me personally. My parents were inter-ethnic, and I guess I am part of an inter-ethnic couple myself. And you know what? Most of my friends who are couples are in some sort of hybrid mix of ethnicities. As Australia becomes more and more diverse with almost 30% of us born overseas, there's just more chance of falling for a person who's different from you, who looks different to you, was raised differently and maybe even believes in a different God.
0: When I first started dating him, it was very secret (laughs) because, of course, I
1: knew they would not be okay with it. Before meeting her fiance, Sophia hadn't had much experience with dating. She'd attended an all-girls school, and as a teen, it was an unspoken rule in her conservative household that mucking around with boys was outlawed. It was probably until I
0: was 18 that my mom was like to me, "Oh, this is probably the age that you are wanting to or are interested in dating guys." You might be influenced by the people that are around you. So I just like to let you know that I don't want you to pursue this. If you get this urge, like just try to quell it or be careful who you hang around with. It was like by my bedside, I think, before I went to sleep. And that was the only time that we ever spoke about it.
1: Sophia's parents had had an arranged marriage and they expected that she would do likewise. It's tradition. It's kind of
0: matchmaking that Mm. happens behind the scenes. Everything is done with your consent at
1: the end, but all of this work happens beforehand. When she was 21, the family started hinting that marriage was on the cards for Sophia. My mom's sister
0: came to visit one time and um, she was asking me, oh, what type of guys are you interested in? And I didn't realise until later, but um, apparently there were guys in India who were wanting to get in touch with
1: me. Did you ever see yourself as having an arranged marriage? Like, were you on board for it? No, I didn't want to ever be
0: arranged. I wanted to be involved as much as possible. So I think I was against it from the beginning.
1: (laughs) And fate intervened anyway. So (laughs) what happened? I
0: started working my first full-time job and I met my fiancé and I think just... The closeness of working together and getting to know each other, eventually just one thing led to another. And before we knew it, we were just interested in each other and liked each other and wanted to pursue our relationship.
1: And completely the opposite of who my parents saw. Sophia's parents wanted her to marry a man of the Islamic faith, without question. And ideally, he'd be Indian too. So when she started falling for a white Australian guy who's a Christian, she knew her parents would be upset. We would go on dates, but I wouldn't really say where I was going. Sophia saw her boyfriend secretly, telling her parents she was meeting up with friends, but she felt terrible lying to her mum and dad. And so eventually she confessed that she was seeing someone. They
0: were very against it. They told me that. I was making the wrong decision
1: and to really consider, like, reconsider what I was doing. All this conflict made Sophia re-evaluate everything, including her faith.
0: I was questioning Islam a lot. I was, like, saying, why do I have to find someone that's Muslim? Because what if I end up finding someone, but they turn out to be a very horrible person later on to the
1: marriage? Sophia's questioning made her parents, well, it made them even more pissed off. They didn't like the fact that I was questioning and which I think
0: is very healthy when you're brought up with a faith and you it's the only thing you've known
1: for 18 years of your life. It's normal. You still consider yourself a Muslim mm-hmm. and he is Christian. Yeah. So how like how did you discuss that? What 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 kind of resolution did you find around that? When we met at the time, we were both non-practicing And I
0: think even now we're quite non-practicing. I think that really helps in that not one person is very religious or wanting to push that on another person. As soon as we started dating, we had one condition, was that we would never
1: try to convince the other person to convert. The atmosphere at her family home turned toxic. Sophia's dad wouldn't even let her be in the same room as her little brother in case she influenced him in a negative way. So Sophia eventually made the tough decision to move out. One good thing is that I
0: still kept my faith. I've just pursued my fiancé. It meant that I lost my family. I still remember the words. He's like, don't expect to be welcomed back in.
1: Despite her parents' disapproval, Sophia and her boyfriend decided to get married. Naturally, they wanted to share their happy news. So, filled with nerves and trepidation, they dropped into her family home one afternoon with a speech planned.
0: My dad opens the door and then my fiancé starts talking. I have something to tell you. And then my dad was just like, oh, um, I refuse to talk to you. Like He just like, shut the door. And so we tried again a couple more times, but he didn't open the door. And I think I could see my fiancé just visibly, like... Getting upset.
1: So we just ended up leaving. Sophia and her fiance end up walking away from the home she grew up in without sharing their news. Sophia starts planning a wedding without her mother's input, which is an absence she feels keenly. Her mum does call occasionally but remains united with Sophia's dad that they do not support the marriage. What do you do when your family, the people who have anchored your entire life, don't talk to you anymore because of the person you love? Dr Rini Singh is a psychotherapist and her specialty is counselling couples from different cultural backgrounds. I asked her what you should do if you find yourself in a position like Sophia, having to choose between love and family.
3: I think the first thing is just to be able to talk about it. I also then think that it's really important for them to learn how to detach from that family. So they have to make an active choice. And I usually try and encourage them to have some form of contact, even if it's not with the parents who might be more religious and might be more fixed in their views. It could be with siblings, you know, and the siblings would then let them know about what's happening With the parents, because I do believe that having no contact with one's family of origin can create lots of mental health issues, which I've seen in my work. Depression, a real sense of disorientation and loss. And so I try and encourage some kind of um, relationship, even if it's a very limited one.
1: Oh, it's heartbreaking for the parents to choose to shut the door on
3: their children, their adult children. That must be excruciating. It is really excruciating, and it goes to show how well, how significant their religion and culture is to them, and how that becomes the highest context marker for them. But that's the other thing I've noticed. In the couple who are struggling with this cutoff, there's often a sense of dissociation, and I wonder if the parents struggle with that same feeling of dissociation as well, by which I mean that they can't quite believe this is happening, you know? Dr. Rini, you work primarily with
1: intercultural couples. What are some of the key issues that come up repeatedly in those couples?
3: So it's about what it means to be a couple, which is quite basic to all couples. And in intercultural couples, what I've noticed is that the partners might have quite different ideas about what it even means to be a couple. They might have different ideas about romantic love about sexuality, about intimacy. Another I've really picked up on is what home means, the meaning of home, where home is, and whose territory they're living in. So I think a lot depends on, you know, what kinds of agreements they can reach and how they can negotiate these differences.
2: I wasn't looking for anything at that time. I was just looking for some fun and then The next day he texted and we did the whole texting sort of thing and then we met up for dinner and it just felt right.
1: Caroline and her husband are an interracial couple who are pretty comfortable in their home territory of Australia. The conflict they experience isn't around religion. It's about the basic human rights of black people.
2: His experience with people from other cultures was pretty limited until he met me. (laughs)
1: Caroline is from Papua New Guinea. She's tall, has tight Afro curls and a cultural tattoo, which is a small cross between her eyebrows that she was honoured with on a return trip to PNG. Her husband is a white guy from regional Australia. The cultural differences between the couple became apparent when she met his family.
2: That was horrible for me. I think partly because I am such a sensitive person and I could see that his family had already judged me. You know, big black girl, tattoo on her head. They don't like me because I'm opinionated and I, I don't tolerate the language that's normal for them.
1: When she says language, she means dehumanising words that racists use to describe people of colour. Understandably, Caroline takes it personally and has had to set some boundaries, particularly with her mother-in-law.
2: She just makes these really inappropriate comments like, oh, you came to Australia on a, on a canoe through Torres Strait Island. And I was like, hold up, lady, no, it's not okay in my house. Well, it's going to be. And I'm like, no, it's not. And I've actually banned... Like I've said to Dan, if you want to have friends with people that use that language, you go and have it elsewhere, but they're not allowed at our home.
1: They stopped seeing his mum five years ago. But just because she's gone doesn't mean racism's gone. Caroline's husband just doesn't know what it's like to be black. And even though he supports her, he will never know.
2: He's never experienced the things like, Getting rejected from a job because I've had a tattoo on my head, or being patted on the hair in woolies by a lady who thought that my hair was was wonderful, or or saying, "Oh, were you one of those? Um, oh, what's that?
1: Fuzzy wuzzies." Yeah,
2: fuzzy wazzy.
1: Caroline and her partner have four-year-old twins, a boy and a girl who look quite different from each other.
2: My girl is my pasty little white girl that I've got to put sunscreen on a couple of times a day and my boy really has PNG features the tight dark hair tan
1: skin Caroline's worried that they'll be treated differently
2: I'm just like freaking out about what the future will hold
1: Dr Rini Singh, who counsels couples from different cultural backgrounds, speaks from experience as she is also in an intercultural relationship herself and, like Caroline, has two kids who look very different from one another.
3: My younger son, who is mixed race, when he was growing up, looked much more English than Indian. I was mistaken for the nanny. And he was teased as well, bullied in school for having an Indian middle name. You know, children in his school would say things like, you know, you smell of curry. So it's really, really sad. But for him, it wasn't so much that he looked Indian, but more that he didn't look Indian. And yet he was Indian. So I guess there's no no winning, really. There's no situation. And I see that a lot in families. For me, it's just the one child who, of course, looks very different from his brother, who is fully Indian. And that also creates some difficulties.
4: An interracial lesbian couple isn't
1: everyone's cup of tea. I want you to meet Keensia and Charlie. Cool. Don't drink the tea. Keensia is African-American and Charlie is a white Australian. I'd fallen in love with America
4: before I fell in love with Keensia or even met Keensia.
1: Charlie and Keensia met online when Charlie lined up some hot dates for her upcoming holiday to her favourite country, the USA.
4: And Keynesia was one of the girls that I started talking to. She just had a real depth to her and, I don't know, we started talking
1: more and more and I started falling in love with her a little bit. Not only are they from different races, they're also from different countries. They married in the US and moved to Australia a few years ago and while Keynesia was relieved to be away from the shitshow of race relations in America, it was disconcerting for her to be
5: in such an overwhelmingly white. Country. When I first arrived here, sometimes being around all vanilla is really, really uncomfortable. In the beginning, it took her a while to understand why I would feel nervous or uncomfortable going in certain areas. I'm a black woman with tattoos, locks, and every now and then I'll get comments. I remember when I first came to Australia. I'm pretty good now, but for the first three years I had PTSD of cops behind me and noises and and that all stemmed from living in Oakland for so many years.
1: It was hard to communicate the trauma baggage that Keynesia brought with her just by virtue of being a black woman from the US. I think it was
4: possibly me not getting it in some ways. like. Not getting why Kearnsia had certain attitudes about the police, for example, or not really understanding the full picture. So I suppose my own ignorance was a bit of a barrier. Mm. Coming from where I'd come from, it was basically a, a white suburb. I didn't have a whole lot of exposure to, to blackness and black issues and black politics. I mean, I grew up with a lot of um, Maori folk, but that's as close as it came to diversity in my suburb.
5: Is it true, Kingsley, that your dad doesn't really have any white friends? White America is just not for him. Think about it, like having to drink from a water fountain that's just for Negroes for many, many years, having to be told you can't do this or do that because of the color of your skin and not be accepted. I got him to Australia because there was a moment in my life where I just wanted my family. I needed my family. And so he and my sister came. My father wanted to continue his routine that he had at home here, and he didn't want to go outside. For some strange reason, him going outside gave him social anxiety because he was around so many white folks. And Charlotte said, was there something wrong with her, you know? And my dad's like, no, there's nothing wrong with you. You love my daughter. I love you. You didn't see colour with her. So you're straddling
1: two countries as well. Do you ever wish that you just both came from the same place so that
5: your families could be nearby? I do get those moments where I I do, I start to cry. I do miss them. I do Do you two have conversations
1: where race and culture are quite frankly talked about? Absolutely.
4: Hmm. Like white privilege, that's a big conversation, Hmm. as is uh, cultural appropriation. I'm her backup. So if Keens is, if we're in a situation and something inappropriate happens, I'll obviously call it out.
1: Dr. Rini Singh says white people need to notice what their non-white partners go through on a daily basis.
3: I still do have, you know, people will give us strange looks. And interestingly, sometimes the hostility is not directed towards me, it's directed towards uh, my white partner. And I think that's interesting too. It's almost as if, you know, There's some sense of how he's let his um, culture or his race down or, you know, I have trained my white partner not to dismiss my experiences, but it was really quite hard in the beginning. I couldn't really address it in our relationship because I thought that it would be offensive or I didn't have the language. I didn't have the uh, sophistication and he became quite defensive when I would bring it up I didn't know how to talk about it, I guess. And that's why I became so fascinated in working with intercultural couples. We have talked about the difficult
1: things to do with an intercultural relationship, but of course there can be wonderful things as well.
3: Can you explain some of the benefits? I think that actually intercultural couples provide us with a microcosm of race relations in society. Research has shown that when intercultural couple relationships work well, They're far more resilient. Even the couples where one has had to sacrifice one's own family of origin, for example, because the couple has been tested so much, they've been through a lot of difficulties in order to become a a couple, that makes them much stronger and much more resilient. In my own household, we celebrate both Diwali and Christmas. And I think it's this kind of hybridity, you know, that gives children the opportunities to feel like citizens of the world to feel that there's a lot of respect, there's a genuine tolerance, celebration of difference. And I think that this is, you know, one of the the best things, really.
5: I'm really thankful. I'm really thankful, really grateful that Charlotte is not from the United States. I just am. Because she comes from some place different. I like different. I like being with someone who is not like me, who doesn't look like me, who doesn't act like me, who doesn't talk like me.
4: I don't think I'd set out to ever date someone that was identical to myself. That said, I didn't set out to date someone that was black either (laughs) or any kind of race. It was just that Keynesia was the person
1: that I was attracted to in that moment that I fell in love with. So if you're on the cusp of a new relationship, falling in love with someone who is culturally different from you, how do you fortify yourselves against the challenges that might arise? Here's Dr. Rini Singh.
3: All couples are intercultural at some level, but maybe it's even more important when you come from completely different countries, ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, to be curious, to know more, to find out more, um, to communicate, to talk to actually have these frank and open discussions before making a commitment, have a conversation about what kind of wedding ceremony they would have, have a conversation about how they'll deal with their own families after marriage, have a conversation about what faith or religion they'll embrace and whether it's possible to have two in the same household, and how they're going to parent. And I think that this is you know, one of the, the best things, really, that we have in the 21st century, this kind of mixing.
2: And with these statements of love and trust and symbols of commitment, it is my absolute pleasure to pronounce Sophia as husband and wife. You may now have kiss.
1: Do you think your family might come around to your choices? I don't think so. I think it's very,
0: very unlikely, but I'm not saying that it's complete no. Probably 98%, no? (laughs) But you're their only daughter. Yeah.
1: I mean, things could change, but just the way I see it. Nick Cave once said, grief is the terrible reminder of the depths of our love. And like love, grief is non-negotiable. I'm guessing Sophia's parents are in their own hell of grief that equals in weight the balance of their love for their daughter. It's painful and we wish Sophia, her parents, her brand new husband and all their future mixed-race kids our very best. And you know what? I used to wonder what would have happened if my mum... Yoshiko hadn't fallen for a white Aussie guy and had instead stayed on in Tokyo, married a Japanese man and had Japanese children instead of creating this genetic milkshake. It would have meant there'd be no Yumi Steins and there'd probably be no Ladies We Need To Talk. Ladies, We Need to Talk is mixed by Anne-Marie de Betancourt. It's produced by Tamar Cranswick, with special thanks to Anne Carter, who kicked off the idea and helped us to make this episode. The supervising producer is Alex Lollback, and our executive producer is Justine Kelly. This series was created by Claudine Ryan. We love hearing from you, so please send us an email. Ladies at abc.net.au. Hi, it's Elizabeth Kulas here. If you're looking for your next bingeable podcast addiction, you should definitely take a listen to Days Like These. My shoes were filled with water. Every bit of perfectly manicured makeup that I'd put on myself was, like, running down my face. I'd
2: like to think I was born a pirate and a series of events led me to be one.
1: In a fresh season of Days Like
5: These, it's the moment everything takes a swerve. When I finally saw that picture, it was such a shock and it was such a physical response that I had. Like, I kind of went hot all over and a little bit shivery. I
2: nearly stopped the car. I just went, wow, what is this? That's so amazing. As soon as I
5: heard that, it was
1: like,
2: oh, my God, there's more of you. I pick up the
1: phone and I hear, hi, it's Elton.
5: Everything changes. The judge sits back down on her stand and, and I was like, this is it. And I sat in the box for the first time in my life. He said, oh my, are you
1: a twin? In my heart, like, there was this switch, the parental love switch. Bang, it came on straight away. Life ricochets out of control. Like,
2: really horrible. <laughs> and she used to bite my bum and she was nasty, really didn't like the world.
1: It's a lot, right? Just enough, I think. Days Like These is an ABC podcast. It's hosted by me. It is filled with fantastic true stories coming from all around Australia. There are laughs, there's danger, there's heartbreak, there's triumph, all the good stuff. These are real Australian stories. Every one comes with a little twist. To listen, just search for Days Like These in your favourite podcast app.